Chapter 10, The History A history of the future is different from a history of the past because it cannot in any, any sense be a narrative. It cannot say what will happen in anything like the same manner as past history says what did happen. All it can do is say what things will be happening most of the time and in most places but without being able to specify those times and those places. This it does through considerations of the laws of nature, chief among which is the law of human nature. In the preceding chapters, I have given what seem to me to be the main principles of this law, and if I have given them correctly, or even roughly so, it will be seen that the general trend of history is inevitable. It becomes hardly more than a summary of my previous discussions. The variety of happenings of a million years is obviously so prodigious that at some place and at some time almost anything could be thought of will be found to have occurred, and so a prophet can foretell what he likes with the fair certainty that an example of it could be cited before the end of the period. I should not be content with such a verification of my predictions. I want to foretell the things that will be happening most of the time and over most of the earth, and I should count it as defeat if the historian of a million years hence should point out that my forecasts were verified because they did once happen for a few decades on some remote island in the Pacific. Indeed, I might express my ambition better by putting it the other way round. At the end of a million years, some gibbon, with all the vast archives of the world at his disposal, may undertake the stupendous task of writing the whole history of the human race. In the excessively unlikely event of his reading this work, I should be best content if he considered it as unworthy of mention because it was a mere description of all the things that were entirely familiar and therefore uninteresting, the things that all his readers would take for granted. He would feel free to pass them over and spend his time in describing the more exceptional and remarkable things that had happened in the course of the ages. Before coming to the details, it may be well to remind the reader once again of the operation of the law of large numbers in connection with probabilities. In the events of the world, one cannot, of course, actually give numerical values to the odds as one can in a game of chance. But I can use the analogy to show what I mean. If I said that the odds were two to one on such and such a state of the world as compared to some rival state, I should not mean that it was twice as likely that the favored state would be happening all the time. I should mean that in the course of the ages, it would prevail for about two-thirds of the time and the rival state for one-third. Now there can be no doubt that most things in the world fall under the category of large numbers. The mere fact that there are even at the present time 2,000 million individuals guarantees this, 
so that probabilities become certainties in the sense that very probable things will be happening most of the time, while less probable things will still happen, but only for a small part of the time. But there may be occurrences so rare that the law of large numbers cannot be applied to them at all. For example, the discovery of the new world in the 15th century was a unique thing because there were no other new worlds to discover. Or again, there is the unlikely but possible chance that there should be a collision of the solar system with another star which would destroy all life on Earth. If any such rare event should occur, it would upset all predictions, and there is nothing more to be said about it. There are no doubt readers who will dislike many of the things I am forecasting, and who will try to evade them by the hope that one of these rare, unforeseeable chances will entirely alter things, and lead to a condition of the world more to their liking. It is possible, but it is much more likely that such things will be unfavorable than favorable, whereas small changes produced by chance are as likely to be beneficial as detrimental when it comes to large changes, and the probability is that they will be unfavorable. I have already cited an example of this from the science of genetics, where by means of x-rays, changes can be adduce, induced in the genes of the cells of animals. If the change is small, it may benefit the animal, but if it is large, it is almost invariable, invariably deleterious and often lethal. The balance of the natural forces in an animal is so delicate that any large change in one feature upsets it entirely. Only if there were compensating large changes in other features could the condition of the animal be improved, and there is practically no chance of these other changes happening to occur simultaneously. A similar principle must apply to the delicate balance of interactions which go to make up the life of the human race. Thus, anyone who hopes that some rare, large, unforeseeable occurrence may better the fate of humanity is almost certain to be disappointed, for it is e enormously more likely to worsen it. The best hopes of benefiting humanity are to be based not on this but on the working of small changes and the law of large numbers, by which there is at least some prospect, little by little, of improving the condition of the world. In what follows, I shall divide up the principal activities of humanity under the headings of population, economics, and so on, and consider each briefly in turn. It may be well to repeat that the views I put forward on these subjects are not intended to be exclusive. It is to be expected that there will be many happenings that contradict them. I am only claiming that such happenings are likely to occur a good deal less frequently 
than the conditions described here. Population The central feature of human history must always be the pressure of population. Man, the wild animal, will obey the law of life and will tend to multiply until he is limited by the means of subsistence. This is the normal condition of the world, and it carries the consequence that the final check on population is by starvation. There will be a fraction of humanity, a starving margin, who have got to die simply because not enough food can be grown to keep them alive. The death may be directly due to intermittent famines or to diseases caused by malnutrition, or it may be due to warfare, for when a country is dying of starvation and sees or thinks it sees a neighboring country with plenty to eat, it would be beyond most human nature to accept certain passive death instead of possible active death. The central question for humanity is the problem of the starving margin. To those of us living the life of Europe at the present time, this is a shocking fact, implying a condition so unfamiliar that there are many who may not willingly believe it. This is because of the quite exceptional history of the 19th century, during which, in spite of enormous increases of population, many countries had no starving margin at all. The disbelief may be helped by the fact that the population of some countries has recently started to decrease. Such decreases have occasionally happened before, too, but, as I have argued earlier, they constitute an entirely unstable state of affairs in that the nations which are decreasing in numbers will die out and will be replaced by the starving margins of the others. On the time scale, I am considering the action of starvation can be treated as if it were uniform and continuous, but it is fortunate that would, it would not appear so to the individual, for famines are not like that. Since man can never aspire to the real control of climate, there will always be fluctuations in the harvests he can produce. For some years there may be a sequence of good harvests, and starvation will be forgotten by everyone. But after that, a few bad harvests will fatally redress the balance. So it would be wrong to imagine that the starving margin suffers a life of continuous grinding misery, but rather one of misery alternating with precarious prosperity. Even so, there are many at the present time who will regard this state of affairs as very dreadful, but, as I've already pointed out, it has always been the normal condition of the life of the Eskimos, who have the reputation of being the most cheerful race on earth. So, as far as concerns the individual, the starving margin would not be in a state of continuous misery, but rather of misery alternating with happiness, which, after all, is not very far below the state of the rest of the world.
For history regarded on the long-term scale, however, these fluctuations of prosperity disappear, and the fact has to be faced that it will be starvation that limits the numbers of the human race. The effects of overpopulation will be a chief feature to be considered in the later sections of this chapter, but here the question arises of what the total population of the world is likely to be, and the answer is immediate. Whatever food the efforts of mankind may produce, there will always be exactly the right number of people to eat it. It all comes back to Malthus's doctrine and to the fact that an arithmetical progression cannot fight against a geometrical progression. If at any time some discovery, usually an agricultural one, should make a greater supply of food available, then reckoning on the long-term time scale, instantaneously the population will rise to a new level, and after that, Things will go on as before, but now with a larger starving margin in the larger population. It is by no means evident that the world will be any the better for it, but the point is not whether it is a good thing, but whether it will happen, and the answer is that undoubtedly it will. The social sense of any community and its immediate practical interest will not tolerate living in contact with the sufferings of its own starving margin, if it is in any way possible to relieve them. The relief will all too frequently involve bad agricultural practice which will ruin the land in the long run, but short-term necessity will always pre prevail against long-term prudence. What is the good of telling a man that he must die now for fear that his grandson may be short of food a century hence. So all over the world there will be immediate pressure to produce more food and the forecast of the future numbers of mankind is the same thing as the forecast of the future of agriculture. But unfortunately it will all too often not be the ideally best agriculture. I do not know how far it would be possible at the present time for an agricultural expert to forecast the total amount of food the earth could produce, but I am certainly in no way qualified to do so myself. I shall therefore, though only very tentatively, set down a few considerations on the subject. In the state of wild nature, animals and plants have learned to live even in the most unfavorable sites, which they have been driven to occupy through the intense pressure of natural selection. This suggests that the total amount of living matter of all kinds on earth can never be very different from what it is now. It is true that new ice ages or pluvial periods which we cannot foretell, might bring rain, and therefore fertility, to the present deserts of the earth. But even if there were no contemporary loss of fertility elsewhere, 
this would hardly even double the area available for life. So it may be assumed that the total living matter of the earth is roughly constant, and that all man can hope to do is to convert more of it to his own use. This he does by promoting the growth of particular types of plant at the expense of the rest. It does not increase the total amount of living matter, for there must be less vegetable life in a wheat field than in the same field when it is let to run wild. Now under the pressure of his needs, man has already exploited to a very great extent the more fertile soils in many parts of the world, but he has only succeeded in replacing the wild plants by food plants through the liberal use of fertilizers. There are still no doubt a good many parts of the earth where this has not yet happened. In particular, this is true of the New World, where the pressure of population has not yet become at all severe. But on the whole, to develop further food supplies means devoting inferior lands to agriculture, and such lands will call for an even greater use of fertilizers. So the possibility of greater supplies of food may be assessed by the available supply of fertilizers. It may, be, it may then be that the future numbers of humanity will depend on the abundance in the surface of the earth of the chemical elements which are necessary for life. Most of them are abundant enough to raise no difficulty, either because they occur in practically unlimited quantities or because only small quantities are needed. Two only deserve comment, nitrogen and phosphorus. The supply of nitrogen in the air is quite unlimited, but it is not easily available to plants by natural processes and to supply it in sufficient quantities for agriculture demands a considerable amount of mechanical powder, power. This method of getting nitrogen is of course already common practice and provided enough work is done to win it, there seems no reason to think that nitrogen need ever run short. The question of phosphorus is far more serious, though less of it is needed. At the present time, it cannot be said to be actually in short supply, though even now it is commercially very profitable to mine fossilized phosphorus deposits, and they are used even in the soils which are naturally fertile. There are great tracts of land, in particular in Africa, which are permanently deficient in phosphorus and these can never be raised to the fertility of the more favored regions unless large quantities of it can be supplied to them. So it may well be that the future numbers of the human race will depend on the abundance of phosphorus in the earth's surface. I have so far only considered extensions of the methods of ordinary agriculture as the way to increase food supplies, but there remains the possibility that wholly new methods might be discovered. 
All existing animals depend on the vegetable kingdom for the supply of the constituents of their bodies. But man might aspire to free himself from this limitation. It may well be that someday it will be found possible to synthesize from their component elements some of the exceedingly compli complicated molecules which make up the important proteins. The essential first step is to do this on the laboratory scale, but even if this was accomplished, it would be a very different thing to make them in bulk, and it would constitute a problem of chemical engineering very far beyond any that has yet been dreamed of. It is perfectly open to anyone to disagree, but I simply cannot believe that there will ever exist factories capable of turning inorganic materials directly into food so that they should be able to do it on a scale which could supply the diet of thousands of millions of mankind. Unless it could be done on this scale, it would not have any material effect on the numbers of humanity. There remains the possibility that new types of vegetable should be converted into food fit for man. I have already touched on the possibility that man might someday make grass into an article of human diet, which is in effect only to say that he might discover a more efficient way of eating it than through the medium of beef. But it is to be remembered that the ox has to graze most of the time in order to get enough protein even for its own body. And this shows only a small fraction of the grass could be really useful to man. The process of directly extracting the protein might be more efficient than making the ox do it, but it would hardly be hundreds of times more efficient, and it is at least possible that, when the plant breeder had modified the grass into being rich in proteins, he would find it demanded fertilizers on such a large scale that it would be more profitable to use them instead for growing wheat. A quite different suggestion that has been made is that food supplies could be increased to an enormous extent by the cultivation of the vast areas of the ocean. The prospects do not look at all good we know that every spring the plankton grows so fast that in a few weeks it has stripped the upper layers of the ocean bare of some of the chemical salts needed for life. To get large food supplies out of the sea would therefore demand much more than the mere harvesting of the plankton. Though this would itself be a very formidable task indeed. Either it would be necessary to expend an enormous amount of power in churning up the ocean so as to make available the salts from the unimpoverished depths, or else fertilizing chemicals would have to be poured into the sea on a quite fantastic scale. I shall not pursue such conjectures further, since when unmade discoveries are admitted to be possible, the subject becomes so uncertain that it is hardly a profitable field for close argument. Nevertheless, I shall risk saying what appears to the, be the most probable forecast 
of the future numbers of mankind. Though I need not say, I recognize that it may be completely upset by some unforeseen discovery. In view of the fact that it is only the existing vegetable kingdom that can be exploited, I do not believe there will be any revolutionary changes in agriculture, but only steady improvements. The improvements will, so to speak, be described by increases in percentages, not by multiples of the present yields. The world will be covered by a population of the same sort of density as is now found in its richer agricultural districts in countries such as China, India, or much of Europe. But in reckoning this, allowance must be made for differences of climate and of the natural fertility of the soils. In effect, this will mean no great increase in the populations of Europe and Asia. The soils of Africa are, for the most part, not so good, but there is room for some increase there. There should be great increases in the Americas and considerable ones in Australia and in some of the large Pacific Islands. As I have pointed out, short-term necessity is often likely to interfere with really good cultivation. But even if this good cultivation could be assumed, it may be estimated that the population of the world is never likely to be more than about three to five times its present numbers. Golden Ages The conditions of population pressure must be expected to be the world's normal state. But it is not, of course, a constant state, for there have at intervals been what may be called golden ages, periods when, for a time, a part of the world could forget about the starving margin. There has tended to be a certain warping in the proportions of history, as given to us by historians perhaps because it has been chiefly during golden ages that there has been sufficient leisure for anyone to become an historian. At all events, the great histories of the world have been written in such periods. Herodotus, the father of history, wrote during the commercial boom of Athens, Tacitus in the great days of imperial Rome, Gibbon, at the height of the 18th century Age of Reason. And however much they were depicting less favorable times, their views were inevitably colored by the conditions that they saw around them. Now we are living in, or perhaps at the end of a golden age, which may well prove to have been the greatest golden age of all time. And we are too apt to be warped by the feeling that it is a normal time. Many readers may be shocked at first at the thought that the past century, an epoch so often decried for its many faults, should have been the greatest of golden ages. But I think it can be justified. In past golden ages, the prosperity was usually at the expense of other peoples, for example. Rome prospered by looting the East and enslaving the barbarians of the West. 
Our golden age came about with comparatively little harm to others. It was mainly through mechanical discoveries which made possible transportation on a great scale so that vast new areas of the world could be opened up for agriculture. It is true that this was done largely at the expense of the American Indian, and his treatment often does not make a pretty story. But still it was a case of many hundreds millions prospering at the expense of a few millions. And so the proportion of suffering inflicted to benefit received must have been far smaller than in most of the previous golden ages. The chief benefit was, of course, to the white races of the Atlantic seaboard, who for more than a century have been able to forget about their starving margin, but it has been by no means limited to them, for many of the other races have benefited too, as is witnessed by the great increases of population of India and Africa, though in these parts of the world they have not been so easily able to forget their starving margins. We are again becoming very conscious of the world's population problem, but now there are no frontiers or unknown parts of the world. into which to expand, and so our golden age is probably near its end. In the future, there will of course be other golden ages, but it can hardly be expected that the balance between good and ill will often be as favorable as it has been in the recent one. It might be that, either by conquest or by commercial exploitation, some regions should gain mastery over other regions to such an extent that it could relieve the starvation of its own margin at their expense. The conquering nation would flourish and call it a golden age, forgetting that its prosperity was at the expense of the peoples that it had overcome. It would be very unlike the colonial exploitations of our own age, which, even if they are open to criticism in some ways, have in most cases increased the populations of the colonies. Another possibility that might create a new golden age is that some discoveries should make available a vast new source of food, and that consequently there would be enough food for perhaps double the previous population of the world. At once there would be a golden age, but after a very few generations, the result would be even more desperate than before, for there would be a starving margin of people now twice as great. This, in effect, is not unlike what has been happening recently, but the present age has had an advantage, never likely to be repeated, in that it started at a time when the civilized world had frontiers over which it could expand and now it has abolished all frontiers by expanding over the whole earth. Unless there should be a catastrophe to the world beyond all thinking, it can never contra contract to such an extent that there would again be frontiers. And it is only if this happened that it could have the chance of again exploiting the vacant places of the earth, so that only under these conditions could there be another golden age, 
which in any sense would match the present one. Science It is the fashion at the present time in some circles to decry the value of scientific discovery and to claim that it is responsible for all our ills. No doubt there was a similar fashion 10,000 years ago to decry agriculture. This view simply will not bear examination. No one would dispute that there are some new troubles in the world which were not foreseen, but they have come about precisely through the successful solution of problems which man always has always been trying to solve, though never before with much success. He has always aimed at making a better life by curing disease, by prolonging life, and by enlarging his communities so as better to spread and share the risks of the world. Suddenly, through the methods of science in particular, by the new methods of communication and transportation, and by medical science, he finds that all these aims are achieved. But he discovers that they lead to new troubles he had not had the imagination to think of. So now he is blaming those who have done exactly what he asked because he finds he does not like a few of the consequences. And he forgets that he is all the time receiving benefit out of all proportion to these troubles. The benefits of science which affect the ordinary man directly are due to such things as medical science and the transportation of foodstuffs together with things like the electric light and the telephone or radio which might be classed rather as luxuries than necessities. These would never have arisen but for the developments of pure science which is primarily an intellectual pursuit studied for its own interest rather than for any intention of benefiting humanity. It is fortunate that there are many men who are driven by this purely intellectual urge, for knowledge would never have advanced far if it had only been stimulated by the motive of practical benefit to humanity. It is the pure scientist who has opened up new realms of thought to the rest of the world, and the advance continues. There seems to be no bound to the field of scientific thought, but nevertheless, in an opposite sense, every new discovery does set a bound by excluding alternatives which had before been regarded as admissible. In this second sense, the field narrows, for example. It is not permitted now to doubt the validity of the laws of thermodynamics, laws which were quite unknown little more than a century ago. But this is not the occasion for a technical discussion on the future of the physical sciences, and I will only say that whatever new ideas may come up, and there is every sign that there will be many of them, there is still plenty of room for improvement inside the known fields. In the hard times to come, it is not to be expected that the remoter speculations of pure science will be pursued as energetically as its practical applications. For example, metallurgy and chemistry will appear more important than astronomy. And fortunately, 
there seem great possibilities for development for a long time in these practical sciences. Nevertheless, we may confidently expect that there will be some who, like Faraday, still hear the call of pure science, for it is from them that the really great advances will originate. It is in the biological sciences that the most exciting possibilities suggest themselves, perhaps because biology has only recently shown rapid advances like those made earlier in the inorganic sciences. I will only speculate on a few among these possibilities which might have great effects on human life. I have already referred to the possibility of quite new sources of food, and I need not enlarge on that further. Another type of discovery may be connected with hormones. Hmm. These internal chemical secretions, which so largely, largely regulate the operations of the human body. The artificial use of hormones has already been shown to have profound effects on the behavior of animals, and it seems quite possible that hormones, or perhaps drugs, might have similar effects on man. For example, there might be a drug which, without other harmful effects, removed the urgency of sexual desire and so reproduced inhumanity the status of workers in a beehive. Or there might be another drug that produced a permanent state of contentment in the recipient. After all, alcohol does something like this already, though it has other disadvantages and is only temporary in its effects. A dictator would certainly welcome the compulsory administration of the contentment drug to its subjects. Another possible, though rather remoter discovery, suggests the most curious consequences. This is the control of the relative numbers of the two sexes. It is known that the sex of a child is carried by the sperm, not the ovum, and it is at least imaginable that some method could be found for sorting out those of the sperm cells which carry the male or the female character. It would thus become possible to regulate how many men or women there should be in a population. If such a practice could be developed, it is sure that for a time there would be a great unbalance in populations. A nation with ambitions for conquest would produce a large number of men for its soldiers, but would pay for it by not having enough women to give birth to the soldiers for succeeding generations. On the other hand, just as the stock breeder keeps a full few bulls and many cows, Another nation might decide that it needed few men in order to maintain its numbers, which would predominantly would such a predominantly female population 
be able to stand up against the male one? Or would a rape of the Sabine woman rectify the disproportions? It is clear that the most remarkable effects will be produced if such developments in biological science should come about. And it is impossible to conjecture how they will turn out. I can only record the opinion that in the long run their effects will mainly cancel out for the reason I have developed in an earlier chapter, that man is and will continue to be a wild animal. To produce effects of these kinds, there must be a master, and the master must be above and not subject to the procedure he is enforcing on his subjects. The dictator could not afford himself to take the contentment drug, because if he did so, his capacity for rule would certainly degenerate. It always comes back to the same point, that to carry out any policy systematically in such a way as permanently to influence the human race. There would have to be a master breed of humanity, not itself exposed to the conditions it is inducing in the rest. The master breed, being wild animals, would be subject to all the fashions, tastes, and passions of humanity as we know it, and so would never have the constancy to establish for generation after generation a consistent policy which could materially alter the nature of mankind. In connection with the recent wonderful advances in medical science, this is the place to mention a matter that will very soon indeed be of immediate importance, since in the normal condition of the world, there will be a margin of every population on the verge of starvation. It seems likely that there will have to be a revision of the doctrine of the sanctity of the individual human life. There will have to be a revision of the doctrine of the sanctity of the individual human life. In the old days, the doctors were under the obligation of doing all they could to preserve any life, though they had no great success in their efforts. Now it is hardly too much to say that most diseases have come under control, or anyhow, to judge by recent progress, most of them soon will. But is the world better for having a large number of healthy people dying of starvation rather than let them die of malaria? One of the justified boasts of recent times has been the great decrease that medicine has made in infant mortality, whereas in the old days a mother might bear ch ten children and have only two survive. Now she may bear only three and she will be regarded as very unlucky if all do not survive. But the difficulty in the world is going to be that the number of people born is too great for the food supplies, so that a fraction must die anyhow. May it not be better that they should die in infancy? The truth is 
that all our present codes about the sanctity of human life are based on the security of life as it is at present, and once that is gone, they will inevitably be revised, and the revision will probably shock most of our present opinions. Economics A very great change in the world economics is inevitable when the accumulated stocks of coal and oil are exhausted. In the scale of human lives, this will, of course, be a gradual process marked by their slowly growing rarer. But on the scale of a million years, the crisis is practically with us already. We shall have spent the capital accumulations of hundreds of millions of years, and after that, we shall have to live on our income. Everything depends on whether a substitute can be found which provides power out of income at anything like the rate at which we are now getting it out of the capital. In an earlier chapter, I have reviewed the possible sources of energy with the conclusion that none are going to yield it up easily. The energy is there in sufficient quantity, but it will take an enormous organization to get it into usable form. A very much greater fraction of mankind will be needed to mind the machines than are at present needed to get the coal out of the mines. And there is another difficulty which may arise. If it should prove impractical to get the energy directly from sunlight, there is the possibility of getting it by the intensive growing of vegetables say by turning potato into industrial alcohol. But if there is always to be a margin of starving humanity, it is not probable that the potatoes will all have to be eaten before ever they are allowed to reach the distilleries. A necessary condition, then, for getting energy out of vegetables is that it should be found possible to grow the vegetables under conditions where they do not require soil that might be used directly for food production. To provide energy on the sort of scale to which we are accustomed will call for a very elaborate organization, a great many machines, and a great many people to mind those machines. In view of the short-sightedness and unreliability of human nature, it seems rather unlikely that any process of this kind could be made to work on a worldwide scale for century after century. But it does seem very possible that some part of the plan should be carried out so that there should be a considerable supplementation to the large amount of energy we already get from water power, which does of course provide energy out of income. The general picture of the economic condition of the world, then, is that the chief centers of power production, and so of the most elaborate civilization, will be the region where there is water power, that is speaking rather loosely, mountainous regions. It will be these that are the centers of manufacture 
and they will exchange their manufacturers for the surplus food produced in the agricultural regions. There will, will also be large power farms in various parts of the world storing energy either by some direct me mechanism or through intermediary of vegetables. It may be guessed that it will be what I may call the mountaineers who possess the most readily available energy who will become dominant through their wealth. They will tend to have the highest culture since culture most easily comes from the leisure created by wealth. It will be they who will tend to rule the world on account of their economic advantages and to judge by most past experience, they will be hated by the others for it. There will be the same sort of contest of interests between the mountaineers and the plain-dwelling agriculturalists as there is even now between town and country. Most of the time, the mountaineer will have the advantage. But the farmer, being the food producer, is bound to have the advantage in times of famine, which will not be infrequent, and there will be parts of the world that relapse, frankly, into barbarism. They will be the less fertile regions, which could not produce much food, so that the more civilized people would get no advantage from exploiting them. But there will be other regions which also relapse into barbarism, though the fertility of the soil could support a greater population than it in fact bears. It is to be expected that such a state of affairs will not usually be tolerated by the civilized countries who will conquer them, and export their own starving margins to fill up the vacant places. I can make no claim at all to anything but the most superficial knowledge of the highly technical subject of pure economics, and the following speculations must be read in the light of this defective knowledge. In the economics of exchange, I will not conjecture what sort of medium will be used. The metallurgical value of gold is not very great, and its mystical value is dead, so that it is not to be expected that it will survive. It would seem that, in the long run, there is likely to be some uncontrollable medium of value functioning in the same sort of manner that gold used to do, instead of the present manipulated systems which are so liable to political abuse. Though no doubt there will be variations through the ages, it is hard to think of anything having a greater simplicity than a monetary system, and therefore presumably that will prevail most of the time. It is quite safe to say that there will always be rich and poor, Wealth will be the mark of success, and so the abler people will tend to be found among the wealthy. But there will always be many among them of a far less estimable character. These are the people who are interested, not in the work, but only in the reward. And they will all too often su succeed in gaining it 
in a variety of discreditable ways, such as by currying favor with an autocrat. As to the less successful members, the standard of living of any community living on its real earnings, as the communities of the future will have to do, it is inevitably lower than that of one rapidly spending the savings of hundreds of millions of years as we are doing now. There will also be the frequent threat of starvation which will operate against the least efficient members of every community with special force so that it may be expected that the conditions of their work will be much more severe than at present. Even now we see that a low standard of living in one country has the advantage in competing against a high standard in another. If there is work to be done, and if two men of equal quality, one is willing to do it for less pay than the other, in the long run, it will be he who gets the work to do. Those who find the bad conditions supportable will be willing to work harder and for less reward in a broad sense of the term. They are more efficient than the others because they get more done for less pay. There are, of course, many exceptions, for real skill will get its reward, but in the long run, it is inevitable that the lower types of labor will have an exceedingly precarious life. One of the triumphs of our own golden age has been that slavery has been abolished over a great part of the earth. It is difficult to see how this condition can be maintained in the hard world of the future with its starving margins, and it is to be feared that all too often a fraction of humanity will have to live in a state which, whatever it may be called, will be indistinguishable from slavery. Politics In the political sphere, it must be recognized that there have always been a great many different forms of government which have shown that they can work in practice, and so it is to be expected that the same will be true in the future. The world will be a sort of museum of different methods of ruling mankind. There will be autocracies, oligarchies, bureaucracies, democracies, theocracies, and even peaceful anarchies. And no doubt each one of them will produce a special political philosophy intended to justify its own procedure against all rivals. In such a variety, it is not possible to foresee any detail, and I shall only touch on a few generalities. Whatever forms the government may take, there can be little doubt that the world will spontaneously divide itself into what I shall call provinces, that is to say, regions, though with no permanently fixed boundaries, which possess some homogeneity of climate, character, and interests. I use the same word whether the different provinces are federated together or whether they are what we should now call separate sovereign states, 
How large will these provinces tend to be? That will depend on the means of communication and transport, and so once again there arises the question of whether the fuel problem is solved, wholly or partially, or not at all. In the past, the chief means of communication was the horse, and the countries of Europe are still mostly of a size adapted to suit this almost extinct means of transport though some of the more newly formed ones do show a trace of the influence of the railway. None of them are really of a size suited to the motor car or the airplane, or to present power production, whether by coal or water power, which cuts right across the national boundaries. If the fuel problem is solved completely, so that mechanical power and transportation is available in the future to a greater extent even than at present, then the provinces will be large. For example, the whole of Europe may well be one, and the whole of North America another. Even if no solution were found to the fuel problem, the world would not revert to its old conditions, because even if transportation became difficult, intercommunication would still be easy by telegraph. The horse might become important again, and at a guess, the provinces would tend to be about as large as the present countries of Europe. In this case, with its greatly increased future population, North America might be expected to break up into a dozen provinces or so. My own conjecture about fuel has been that something intermediate will happen and that power supplies will not be as easy as they are now, but that by greatly increased effort, they will be brought to something not very far below the present level. In this case, North America might fall into four or five provinces and Western Europe into one or two. It is never to be expected that there will be any permanence about the numbers of them or about their boundaries. Consider next what are likely to be usual relations between the provinces. It is too much to expect that there can never be a permanent world government benevolent, benevolently treating all of them on a perfect equality such an institution could only work during the rare occasions of a worldwide golden age. To think of it as possible at other times is a misunderstanding of the function of government in any practical sense of the term. If the only things that a government was required to do were what everybody or nearly everybody wanted, there would be no need for the government to exist at all because the things would be done anyhow. This would be the impracticable idea of the anarchist. But if there are to be starving margins of population in most parts of the world, mere benevolence cannot suffice. There would inevitably be ill feeling and jealousy between the provinces, with each believing that it was not getting its fair share of the good things, and in fact, it would be like the state of affairs with which we are all too familiar. 
If then there is ever to be a world government, it will have to function as governments do now, in the sense that it will have to coerce a minority, and indeed it may often be a majority, into doing things they do not want to do. In the light of these considerations, it is to be expected that a single government of the earth will not arise very frequently. Most of the time, the provinces will be nearly independent states, which form alliances with one another so as to compete against rival alliances. It will be the old story of power politics again. Now and then, a Napoleon may arise and unite some of the stronger provinces, and with their help, he may overcome the rest. For a time, he will form an unquiet world government, but after a time, his dynasty will decay and the world will go back to the condition of the contending provinces. Here again, much depends on the fuel problem. If transportation is easy, world conquest will be easier for both military reasons and because the more uniform culture should make the world government more acceptable. For the government of the separate provinces, it is no use hoping that democracy could often be possible for the very simple reason that a hungry man will vote for his next meal rather than for reasons of state. Even at the present time, the attempt to import democratic institutions into poverty-stricken countries has been a failure. A necessary condition for democracy is wealth, and the wealth must not be concentrated into too few hands, and the lack of this diffusion of wealth is the reason why some rich countries, such as Imperial Rome, fail to give democracy to their peoples. Widespread wealth can never be common in an overcrowded world, and so in most countries of the future, the government will inevitably be autocratic or oligarchic. Some will give good government and some bad, and the goodness or badness will depend much more on the personal merits of the rulers than it does in a more democratic country. Occasionally through conquest, or perhaps through being first in the field with a new discovery, some regions will experience a golden age, and it may, as we ourselves have succeeded in doing, develop for a time a system of true democratic institutions. One of the chief instruments of politics is war, so that it is proper to consider what the future of warfare is likely to be. In this, there is a question of the most general importance to be considered first. It is whether the attack or the defense is likely to be the stronger, or, putting it figuratively, whether the cavalry or the infantry is to rule the battlefield. The importance of the question may be seen from past history. After the decay of the Roman Empire, the superiority of the cavalry cavalry led to more than 500 years of barbarism in Europe during which turbulent knights in armor possessing little merit 
but a narrow skill in the use of their arms could hold the world to ransom. They nearly succeeded in destroying the last surviving vestiges of civilization, and it was only later, through the creation of organized armies, helped by the invention of gunpowder, that the infantry again became the predominant arm. After this, it became unprofitable to conduct aggressive war in the irresponsible manner that had been profitable earlier, and with this change, gradually order and civilization could return to Western Europe. In very recent times, there has been a threat that once again the cavalry, in the form of the tank and the airplane, might become superior to the infantry. The danger is by no means over, but the experience of the recent war does suggest, rather contrary to expectations, that the infantry still reigns on the battlefield. However, there is a stronger reason which seems seems to safeguard the future of civilization from destruction by the cavalry. This is what it calls, this is that it calls for a very high pitch of civilization to make a tank or an airplane. It is by no means unlikely that at some time or other, one of the world's provinces may establish itself as a military autocracy and conquer the rest of the world. But to be successful, it would have to be and to stay at the peak of civilization. So it seems unlikely that, in the future, civilization will be directly destroyed by war as it was in the Dark Ages. As to what weapons will be used in war, much will of course depend on how far the fuel problem is solved. But perhaps less than in other fields of activity because armies and navies always claim and usually receive the highest priority in the satisfaction of their demands. It is to be presumed that existing weapons will be improved, that this will be true of both offensive and defensive ones, and that on the whole, in the long run, the improvements will cancel out. It might be thought natural for me to speculate on the future of the atom bomb, but I shall not do so here, as it is too early to form a critical opinion. Whenever a new weapon is invented, a surge of unreasoning horror goes through the world, which has little relation to the weapon's absolute value. This was so at the time of the introduction of gas warfare, which military opinion now tends to regard as an inferior weapon, and though the atom bomb must be accepted as far more important, there has not yet been time to assess it properly. The same is true of the various forms whew, of biological warfare that have been considered. And no doubt there will be other wholly new weapons invented from time to time. All these weapons will increase the destructiveness of war. But it must not be forgotten that at the same time there will also be inventions which increase the recuperative power of the defense.
There are two rather different incentives that lead to war. One is fanaticism, the other self-interest. Fanatical wars have been rather rare, and fortunately so, since under the stimulus of a fanatical creed, man is ready to inflict and also to suffer brutalities to a degree that would hardly be believed possible by those who do not share the creed. It is to be expected that at intervals there will again be such wars. In an overpopulated world, it is inevitable that there will be a greater callousness about human life, and so it is to be expected that their ferocity will be increased, perhaps even beyond the rather high standard that has been set by the religious wars of the past. Wars stimulated by the milder motive of self-interest may well be more frequent. Here the incentive will often be land hunger, the wish to find land for a province's starving margin at the expense of another province. In view of the cheapened value of human life, there is little likelihood that the hostile population will be treated in a more humane manner than has been the custom in the past. But it will be to the interest of the conqueror to occupy the enemy's land without destroying it. This means that many of the most destructive weapons would not be used, neither the atom bomb, which might make the ground uninhabitable for years, nor biological warfare in any form, which might have the effect of making it permanently infertile. This consideration may moderate the evil effects of war to a small extent, but regarded generally, there is no reason to foresee that war in the future will be any less dreadful than it has been in the past. Civilization It will make a fitting end to my essay to consider the future of civilization, whether it will endure permanently rising to still greater heights or whether it is destined to decay after a period of efflorescence, as has happened to so many civilizations in the past. Though we should all agree rather vaguely as to what we mean by civilization, different people may regard very different aspects of it as a central feature. To some, it may mean principally great developments in art or literature. To others, well-equipped cities and houses. To others, a good system of law. To others, deep learning. And to others, good social conditions. I do not dispute that all or any of these may be involved, but countries could be named which everyone would concede were civilized yet which have conspicuously lacked some of these excellences. So for want of a general definition, the best way I can describe what seems to me to be involved is by citing an example from the past, the civilization of China. The Chinese Empire has been civilized for over 3,000 years, and until very recent times has enjoyed a very fair measure of isolation. 
Broadly speaking, during all that time, it has retained the same general characteristics. It has been ruled by a succession of dynasties rising and decaying in turn. During the periods of decay, the provinces have often been practically independent, conducting warfare with one another until at length a new strong hand has arisen to control them. In its forms of government, it is true that China seems never to have produced anything like European democracy, but this lack is offset by the creation of a highly organized civil service, not merely centuries but millennia before anything of the kind existed in Europe. All the time the general character of the civilization has been preserved, now in one place, now in another. Sometimes it has been advanced by important new discoveries, such as the invention of printing. All the time there has been a liability to famines, which have killed off millions. The perpetual presence of a margin of starving humanity has set a low value on human life and is made for callousness in regard to the sufferings of the people. This has led to much cruelty of a kind we are unfamiliar with now. Though it could have been matched anywhere in Europe a few centuries ago, there have been golden ages when the arts have flourished as nowhere else on earth, and deep learning has been achieved, which we only do not reverence so much as do the Chinese because it has taken rather a different color from our own. But even in this, we have to concede that the Confucian philosophy has lasted far longer than any of the philosophies of the West. It would seem that in its constancy of character, both in its virtues and in its defects, the Chinese civilization is to be accepted as the model type of a civilization to a greater degree than any of the other civilizations of the world. In the manner in which it has retained its individual character permanently, the Chinese civilization seems preeminent, but of course others too have survived for quite long periods. The Roman civilization, though it died in the West, was preserved in a modified form for nearly a thousand years longer in the East. In the same loose sense, the Mesopotamian civilization was preserved by the Arabs at Baghdad until it was overthrown by the Turks, and even so, it survived in Egypt and in Spain. There have not been a great many different civilizations in all, so that it is not very safe to generalize but admitting that some have disappeared, leaving no heirs, still the general conclusion must be that in the main, there has been at least some survival, if not in the place of origin, then elsewhere. However, that may be, our present civilization is, an incomparably strong, is in an incomparably stronger position, for it is dominated by the scientific revolution, which as I have tried to show, makes it basically different from all previous civilizations. The scientific revolution has introduced ways of thinking which can claim a quality of universality 
because they are objective and nearly independent of aesthetic tastes. Even now, the community of scientists is quite international so that they can discuss together the matters that concern them without any thought of national or racial differences. This has never been true of ideas in art, philosophy, or religion. For example, the learned of Europe and the learned of China each reverence their own classical literature profoundly, but neither values very highly the classics of the other, whereas in their own subject, the scientists of the whole world cannot help valuing the same things. If he is thinking, say, about an electric current, an educated Central African will go through the same processes of thought as an educated Englishman, and no difference in their aesthetic tastes will make any difference between them in this. The scientific revolution has changed the world materially in innumerable ways, but perhaps the most important of all is that it has provided a universality in methods of thought that was wanting before. So there is an even stronger reason to believe that the new culture cannot die than ever held for any of the old civilizations. It has only got to survive in one part of the earth for it to be recoverable everywhere. Even the old civilizations survived for the most part, and it can be regarded as certain that the new culture will be inextinguishable. A much more difficult question to answer is the question whether civilization will be retained within the same races or whether there will have to be a perpetual renewal from more barbaric sources. Western Europe, which largely provided the barbarians who recreated the Roman civilization, is itself at the present time in imminent danger of committing suicide. Must civilization always lead to the limitation of families and consequent decay and then replacement from barbaric sources which in turn will go through the same experience? The new developments in birth control make the threat a great deal more formidable, but in the long run, I do not think that is to be feared. There are already many people with a natural instinctive wish for children and this wish is sometimes strong enough to outweigh the economic disadvantage which undoubtedly at present attaches to having a family. Such people will tend to have larger families than the rest, and in doing so will at least to some extent hand on the same instinctive wish to a greater number in the next generation. As I have already argued, the limitation of population is an unstable process which cannot persist. It is very conjectural how long the transformation will take. But as the change that is needed in the balance of human sentiments is very slight, it seems likely that the new balance will not take very long to be established. Perhaps thousands of years, but not hundreds of thousands. The first nation or race which can keep its civilization and at the same time superimpose on it this change in the balance of instincts will have the advantage over all others, 
both the civilized races that lack the instinct and the barbarians who have not needed it for their survival. This nation will in consequence dominate the world. In the establishment of permanently civilized races, the most important control will be the small change in the balance of human instincts because it will have become inherent in the race's nature and will not need to be taught to each succeeding generation. But it will be helped and might be much accelerated if creeds should arise working in the same direction. In the history of mankind, creeds will continue to be of very great importance. Among the most important, there will always be the creeds which, without undue fanaticism, inculcate a strong sense of social obligation, since it is only through such creeds that life is possible in crowded communities. There will also, no doubt, often be fanatical creeds to disturb the peace of the world, and there will be others to comfort the world. I shall not attempt to conjecture what the tenets of these last will be. Their main function is to act as a solace to their believers in the very bleak world I have described. It is only this that makes the world tolerable for many people, and this will be much more true in times of real hardship than in periods of relatively easy prosperity like the present. The detailed march of history will depend a great deal on the creeds held by the various branches of the human race. It cannot be presumed, presumed with any confidence that purely superstitious creeds will always be rejected by civilized communities. In view of the extraordinary credulity shown even now by many reputedly educated people, it is true that there may not be many at the present time whose actions are guided by an inspection of the entrails of a sacrificial bull, but the progress has not been very great, for there are still many believers in palmistry or astrology. It is to be expected, then, that in the future, as in the past, there will be superstitions which will notably affect the course of history, and some of them, such as ancestor worship, will have direct effects on the development of the human species. But superstitious creeds will hardly be held by the highly intelligent, and it is precisely the creed of these that matters. It is possible that there should arise a eugenic creed. It is possible that there should arise a eugenic creed, which, perhaps working through what I have called the method of unconscious selection, should concern itself with the improvement of the inherent nature of man instead of resting content with merely giving him good but impermanent acquired characters. Without such a creed, man's nature will only be changed through the blind operation of natural selection. With it, he might aspire to do something towards really changing his destiny. To conclude, I have cited the past history of China as furnishing the type 
of an enduring civilization. It seems to provide a model to which the future history of the world may be expected broadly to conform. The scale will, of course, be altogether vaster, and the variety of happenings cannot by any means be foreseen. But I believe that the underlying ground theme can be foreseen, and that in a general way, it will be rather like the history of the Chinese Empire. The regions of the world will fall into provinces of ever-changing extent, which most of the time will be competing against one another. Occasionally more rarely than has been the case in China, they will be united by some strong arm into an uneasy world government, which will endure for a period until it falls by the inevitable decay that finally destroys all dynasties. There will be periods when some of the provinces relapse into barbarism, but all the time civilization will survive in some of them. It will survive because it will be based on a single universal culture. Derived from the understanding of science. For it is only through this understanding that the multitudes can continue to live. On this basic culture, there will be overlaid other cultures, often possessing a greater emotional appeal, which will vary according to climate and race from one province to another. Most of the time and over most of the earth, there will be severe pressure from excess populations and there will be periodic famines. There will be a consequent callousness about the value of the individual's life and often there will be cruelty to a degree of which we do not willingly think. This, however, is only one side of the history. The other side, on the other side, there will be vast stores of learning far beyond anything we can now imagine, and the intellectual stature of man will rise to ever higher levels. And sometimes new discoveries will, for a time, relieve the human race from its fears and there will be golden ages when man may, for a time, be free to create wonderful flowerings in science, philosophy, and the arts. Hmm. End of chapter 10.